You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, before we get started, this is Evan. I'm here to tell you about a new story from the Atavist magazine called Not Fuzz. It's by David Mark Simpson. If you go check it out at magazine.atavist.com, I do not think you will regret it. It is an insane, true buddy cop story, except that neither of the cops who are buddies are actually cops. It's wild. The reporting in it is unbelievable. And you can find it again at magazine.atavist.com. Here's the show. Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I am Evan Ratliff from Atavist. I'm joined by Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer from Longform. Another week, another introduction, another podcast down the great river of time. Wow, man. It seems like you're in, a, uh, you're in a very zen place today. Who's on the show? This week I talked to David Gessner, who is uh, an essayist. He's a very literary nonfiction writer. He's written either nine or ten books. The most recent one is called Ultimate Glory. Uh, it's a memoir. It's also about Ultimate Frisbee. You guys may or may not remember that I said, I'm going to have someone on, and we're just going to talk about Ultimate Frisbee. Wait a minute. So we you, did. Wait a minute. Evan, Evan. You, you're into ultimate frisbee. <laughs> Evan may or may not have some ultimate glory in his past. It's probably it's never been mentioned on this on this particular podcast that I played ultimate frisbee. Probably because I knew you guys would make fun of me. That's actually one of the points that's really well articulated in the book, and I believe in this interview is uh, people like you guys putting down ultimate frisbee. Uh, when it actually is a real sport. I, no one said anything negative yeah. about Ultimate Frisbee. We're, I see. Pure, I see, pure I see. <laughs> We're just putting you down. I'm ready. <laughs> Our show is brought to you, as always, by MailChimp. Hey, we got something coming up. That's soon. Yeah, the MailChimp event? Labor Day weekend. A couple weeks away. Decatur Book Festival. Some of our favorite authors are coming with us, and uh, Evan and I are going to be uh, interviewing them from various stages. If you're in the Atlanta area or you just want a uh, nice Labor Day trip, go to uh, Read This Summer. Com. All uh, thanks to the good people at MailChimp who have supported this show from the very beginning. Thanks to them. Here's Evan with David Gessner. David Gessner, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm always excited to interview anyone that we have on the podcast, but I will say that we're here partly because you have a memoir out called Ultimate Glory, which is largely about Ultimate Frisbee. Largely. Largely, <laughs> but not not exclusively. Yep. I don't think I've ever had anyone in our couple hundred guests on this podcast, of which I've done roughly a third, um, that has written something that felt so intensely personal to me. Yeah, like, yeah. Like it's something that I wanted to write almost. Right. Um, and I wanted to start off by telling you a little story, uh -huh. which is that on the back of this book, there's a quote from Kevin Fedarko that says, a trumpet blast in celebration of a game that has remained against all odds, uncorrupted by its success, referring to Ultimate Frisbee. Kevin Fedarko is a great writer in his own right. He used to be an editor at Outside Magazine. Okay. In 1998, might have been early 1999, I don't know the exact date, I pitched the first feature story I ever pitched to a magazine to Kevin Fedarko at Outside Magazine about the 1999 World Championships, which I was going to play in. Mm -hmm. And I believe I pitched it to him by fax. Like, I faxed him a story pitch, like, first person. 
And then I read this book. Not only is he quoted on the back, which is incredible, but also you were working on this book back at that time. Yeah, yeah. And my my sort of feeling, uh, that pitch obviously was uh, rejected probably because it was terribly written, but was that no one wanted to hear about Ultimate Frisbee. No one wanted to hear about it as a serious sport or like a more serious sport than you think. I pitched stories over the years. So just to even see this book in existence is like a special thing to me, even though you wrote it and I never came close to even writing about Ultimate Frisbee. Yeah. All of which is to say is I'm really interested in the talking a little bit about the genesis of the first time you write, tried to write this book and maybe starting there. Okay. When did you graduate from college? I graduated from college in 1997. Okay. So I graduated in 1983 and almost instantly started pitching articles about Oswald <laughs> Frisbee that were constantly rejected by outside among others. Um, in fact, I have a piece or I had a piece in the June issue of Outside yes. Magazine that probably, I'm pretty sure, is their first feature on Ultimate. I'm positive it is because I would have, if I had seen a previous one, I would have said, hey, why'd they assign that to that person? Exactly. So what I think they felt was, like many people, and it's one of the themes of the book, is Ultimate's not this real thing that it's, as I say in the book, it's like saying you play pro tiddlywinks, (laughs) and that it wasn't kin with the other things they were doing, the, you know, mountain climbing and mountain biking and which is weird to me because it seems such an obvious cousin to those things, but to them it didn't. So there may be people out there who, to their loss, are not familiar with Ultimate Frisbee as a sport. So maybe give your contained explanation of what Ultimate Frisbee actually is. Okay, first what it's not, it's not throwing it for a dog. It's not Frisbee golf. It is a field sport, the way soccer is, the way football is, and it's a little like basketball too. It's a game of constant movement where you're throwing the Frisbee. It can only advance through the air, and then it has to cross a goal line. And if it's knocked down, it changes direction. So there's a lot of running. And because the Frisbee hovers, there's also diving after the Frisbee. And because it hovers, there's also skying, which means going up high in the air. So the best and most exciting moments tend to be those of of either defensive dives or, uh, or offensive catches that make it look as if the Frisbee's waiting for the catcher or defender. And it's played to points, and you get a point each time you cross the goal line, or the disc cross the goal line is caught on the other side. And we should say that you may have seen people playing casually in the park, and there's sort of one style of people playing in a very casual pickup fashion. But for now, since the late 70s, early 80s, you could find local, regional, national, and world championships where you will find people wearing these days uniforms, yeah. cleats who have trained all year uh, on track workouts and hill workouts to be in the top shape in order to try to uh, succeed at this sport. Exactly. Who are running fast, jumping high, and, and really training. And then maybe uh, also partying. Uh, hard afterward, yes. Uh, that, is that still true? Yes. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> um, so my editor at Outside, Mike Roberts, who played Ultimate, and I had been scheming for a long time about trying to Trojan horse in to outside an ultimate piece. And the way we finally did it was this piece on Bo Kittredge was saying, what if a real athlete played an unreal sport? Which really isn't how I would do it, actually. Yeah. But to break through that boundary and get it inside. And then once we were inside to have the history of the sport a little bit and other things. So, yeah, I was right there with you. And I totally understand. Um, I've been pitching it to big places forever. And it's it's just another example of, you know, the fact that people don't know what the hell it is or they just can't get their head around that something with the word Frisbee in it can be the serious athletic thing. Yeah. So I, I hope that that's the beginning of a breakthrough with, with them. But I'm right there with you. And, and in terms of the evolution, I, you know, stopped playing in 96 published my first book a few months later in early 97. And the book was a memoir about my dad's death. Uh-huh. And it was heavy on uh, natural history in Cape Cod too. And it was called A Wild Ranked Place. And the full quote is a throw quote. It is a wild ranked place and there's no flattery in it. And I felt that way about the natural world, but also about my dad who was very gruff and blunt. So I published that. Then I published another small book with the University of Arizona about Colorado in the West and moving there from Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. So that book didn't sell particularly well. 
but I got the attention of an agent at ICM, and she said, let's see what you got. You know, and so I sent my novel, I sent essay collections and all this stuff, um, probably sent graphic novel stuff that I've been working on. But she picked out this proposal, which was that I would go back after not playing for two years, like a George Plimpton kind of character, and play with the Boston team. And by then they were national and world champs. Yeah. And so I went down, played in a tournament. We won. That was fun. Came back to Cape Cod where I was living with my wife. And we were living totally cheap. We had like 50 bucks in our bank account. Went to bed at 8 that night. I was so tired. Got up at midnight and kept writing for a week. Because I'd finally been given, I'd written these serious things where I'm quoting Thoreau and doing all, and suddenly somebody's giving me permission to write about Ultimate. Yeah. Which I'd been playing for 20 years and knew all the funny stories. So a large part of that book was written in the next seven days where I was just cranking and laughing and like, and going, Nina, you won't believe, you know, I just jumped out of a window or I just like, you know. So um, then I give it to my agent and she loves it. And we hear through a writer friend that she thinks she's going to sell it for big bucks. And so all these editors are interested. And I come down to New York and interview and talk to them. And it looks like there's going to be a bidding war. But the marketers and publicists get hold of it. And they're like, what the hell is this thing? Is this the thing you do with dogs? And it was it was the same as it ever was, with just like you with outside and you know, and the book didn't sell. Yeah. And it was such it was like losing in the semis or finals at nationals. And it was like this crushing blow. And so I kind of let it die. It was really hard to let it die. I'd been so fired up about it. And I I lost all writing momentum on it. You know, yeah, I, I could have written the whole thing in the next month. Did you stay with the team and keep no like, I was, shadowing them? Or once no? the book died, I was like, nah, yeah, you know, I'm not going to do this. I've already spent 20 years in ultimate prison. I don't need to do it again. I think they won the worlds that I went to, which was in Scotland, maybe yeah. the next year. Yeah, and that they was kept the team winning, that won. Yeah, I could have won nationals, didn't want, <laughs> but the fucking New York publishers didn't let me. So, <laughs> so then. You know, I had a book come out, and then I had a book called Sick of Nature, which yeah. was kind of my rebellion against the nature genre. And I just put the ultimate glory in as an essay. And then I think we posted it online on our website, but Longform picked it up, and a couple other places picked it up. And it suddenly had this slow coming back to life. And then we started a website called Bill and Dave's Cocktail Hour. Yeah, yeah. And it got like, you know, 40,000 views on there. So gradually it was like, oh, this is good, like I thought it was, you know. And then I think USA Today picked it as one of its top 13 sports pieces in 2013. Yeah. And then the Olympics came along for Ultimate, and I was like, screw it, I'm going to go back. You know, By then I'd written nine environmental books, and I was really, really happy. You know, like you, it was years of trying to get ultimate into print and yeah to finally do it was was great and the favorite comments i get are from when you're saying it's kind of your story because it's so particularly mine in a way and and i'm such a fuck up as a young guy and everything but it's amazing how many letters i'm getting from ultimate players saying oh that's what it was like for me so. yeah and, and then there's certain ideas that are articulated in the book i mean there are certain aspects of it that i think anyone who does some activity very obsessively that other people don't always right. respect right. can relate to like the idea of like someone saying like you got injured doing what or like right. you know you're playing with what it's a frisbee it's dogs like all that kind of stuff but there was also another layer of an aspect of it I hadn't thought about really which is that that is kind of the appeal in a way of the activity like that is why people become obsessed with it because there's no one watching because it's all built on these stories that you right. tell each other afterwards, right. and it's this kind of community. Yeah. And I never really, I don't think I'd thought about it in that way. Yeah. My wife just listened to the audio book. It's kind of funny because the previous book was called All the Wild That Remains. It was a dueling biography of Ed Abbey and Wall Stegner. And she listened to that, and it was a first-person narrative, and it was told by this kind of English-sounding actor. <laughs> My daughter's name is Hadley, so she'd be listening and be like, Hadley and I went up into Wyoming. Um <laughs> And we then we started to speculate, what if she fell in love with the narrator and left me for him? And uh, But anyway, so this time I did the book myself, and my wife said her favorite lines were, I wanted to win nationals, but I also wanted to lose nationals and drool on the trophy. So it was <laughs> this constant pull, and, like, and part of the attraction was this screw-it attraction of just, 
I'm going to do this thing that nobody cares about, like you know the way you said, and my teammates know, and there's glory within this small community, but in a weird way, I try to use it as a metaphor for writing, because though writing isn't ultimate, you know, you don't people don't say writing, what's that? But as a young writer, before you publish, you're pretty much saying the same thing to somebody at a, some rich guy at a cocktail party who says, "What do you do?" Mm-hmm. You say. Well, I'm uh, I'm trying to write, you know, and they're like, well, what have you published? And it's the same thing, you know, what do you do? Oh, I play this sport called Ultimate Frisbee. And so how do you kind of build the muscles of nonconformity? How do you keep doing these things when you're not getting external kind of strokes? It's a big part of the book, I think. And, and how do you do it when you're young, you know, and, and not sure who the hell you are yet? Mm-hmm. You know, so. And so in that era of right after college and when you were you know, playing Ultimate so seriously, you were more writing novels or trying to write yes, novels. Yes, and I still am. Oh, know, really? Yeah, I'm trying to publish my novel next. And in some way, it's the same as that novel I was working on within the Ultimate Glory. It's uh-huh. about Cape Cod and it's about my schizophrenic brother. You know, that's another thing that's kind of like what you're talking about, wanting to have success but destroy success is, you know, I could comfortably sit in the box of environmental writer now and keep doing that until I'm dead. But uh, having a success there makes me want to go in another direction and undermine it. I mean, I'm not claiming I'm Whitman, but he's got a great line about it where he says, I resist anything better than my own diversity. You know, you do something and then you want to go the other way. Uh That's why I wrote Sick of Nature. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) even in your writing itself that gets classified as quote-unquote nature writing, there's a lot in there that's actually against the sort of tropes of nature writing or the way it's portrayed. Well, I think so because I think one of the things I'm trying to do is give people who aren't naturally interested in that an in, and the in is through the character I create. I mean, I was always a huge Ed Abbey fan, and that's one of the reasons I started reading that kind of stuff is because I was drawn to Abbey. Then I learned you know, the Latin name of the flower or bird, but I had to get in there somehow. So to some extent, I try to provide the same thing with, with humor and with contradiction. Hey, it's Aaron from the Longform Podcast with a quick word from our sponsor, Casper. Casper is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. It's got supportive memory foam to create an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. I can tell you this because I know this because I, yes, I, a host of this show, sleep on a Casper mattress. You can try Casper for 100 nights risk-free in your own home. If you don't love it, they'll pick it right up and refund you everything. Free shipping returns to U.S. and Canada, over 20,000 reviews and an average of 4.8 stars, and five stars from me, the critic who truly matters in the mattress game. So I encourage you to get a Casper mattress at casper.com slash longform with the code longform, which will get you 50 bucks towards any mattress purchase. Again, casper.com slash longform. Thanks, Casper. Our next sponsor today is HelloFresh. They are on a mission to save home cooking because it's simply too good to go away. HelloFresh is a meal kit delivery service that makes cooking more fun so you can focus on the whole experience, not just the final plate. I started getting it. I found that I was cooking more. I found that I didn't have weird stuff left over in my refrigerator because they use fresh ingredients measured to the exact quantities you need so there's no food waste. It comes with step-by-step instructions designed to take around 30 minutes for everyone from a novice, that's me, to a seasoned home cook, that's maybe you. My favorite part this summer is they've been starting to do these sort of light summer meals, and they've also got breakfast. It's all for less than 10 bucks a meal. So, delicious ingredients, you'll love to eat, simple recipes, you'll live to cook, get cooking, 30 bucks off your first week of deliveries if you go to HelloFresh.com and put in code LONGFORM30. Again, that's HelloFresh.com. Code LONGFORM30 gets you 30 bucks off your first week of deliveries when you subscribe, and you'll be supporting the show. Thank you, HelloFresh. And how did you first make the transition from the novels that you were trying to write uh, in your 20s to writing what was essentially like a type of memoir uh, that ended up being your first book? Like, how did that actually come about? That's a great question. And I think my fiction, 
I had a lot of writers I admired, but Roth was huge for me as a young writer. So I was trying to create a fictional persona where a lot of the drama was internal to begin with. So that was what the fiction was like. And then something else was going on during my 20s when I was playing Ultimate. I moved to our family house on Cape Cod in the off season. And suddenly, you know, I'd only gone there in the summers. So suddenly I was seeing the bird migrations. I was noticing the tides. I was writing journal notes obsessively about the natural world. No intention of writing it. I, I would use it in my fiction, of course, as a in a lyric sort of way. But then, and I also, and this sounds weird, but I also did some writing while I was doing mushrooms on the Cape. <laughs> and the natural world would play a big part in that too. Um, so then when I went to grad school, finally at 30, and I went to Colorado, uh-huh. I had a teacher named Reg Sonner, who's a completely underrated essayist uh, who writes about the West mostly, which is one of the reasons you don't hear about him east of the Mississippi. And he was teaching a class called Creative Nonfiction. And I was like, what the hell is that? You know, this is the magazine Creative Nonfiction had just come out. And he kind of urged me to cut to the chase. I'd been developing this fictional persona, but like, why not? It's me. Why not have it be me? Mm -hmm. And suddenly I took the journal notes and, and was like, hey, this is kind of a missing leg in my writing the natural world. So it was like the natural world uh, was one kind of, of a three-legged stool. The other was the persona I'd been developing. And the third was humor. You know, and I, I loved Roth. I loved Vonnegut. I loved, I loved funny writing. And so Hunter Thompson. And so I was like, wow, these things mix well together. And while I was doing this, trying to write a kind of year in the woods book about Cape Cod, my dad started dying. Mm-hmm. And he was this, as you can tell from the ultimate book, kind of this larger-than-life figure. So I started incorporating that into the book. And then there was a moment when he was in hospice and he was in our house and he was in the bed and he'd been drugged and he hadn't said anything coherent for a few days. And I was scribbling, taking notes in my journal while he was lying there. And all of a sudden he like woke up and said, make sure you get the facts down. And it was just like, holy hell. You know, I will, I will. So the first book, he died, and then the first book, which was about him, came out. And it was like kind of like he'd lost his voice, but I was gaining mine at that moment. So it was a, it was a really intense thing. I've been saying that I've, there's been a little movie interest in Ultimate Glory, and I'm saying my only stipulation will be I have to play my father, <laughs> <laughs> who looks kind of like Lou Grant. And uh, so I have to like have a bald thing and shave my beard off and... And, but I can do a gruff voice. So <laughs> they can do amazing things with CGI, that's too. Right, so, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so the ultimate book was right after that, that you were maybe going to do. and then Pretty pretty didn't... soon after that, yeah, uh-huh. yeah. And how did you kind of go from there in terms of getting into what we could loosely call nature writing? But really, a lot of the writing you do doesn't feel exactly yeah. like nature writing. But... I was only, as, as the Frank Zappa album is titled... I'm only in it for the money. And so <laughs> actually the essay, Sick of Nature, got published and got a little attention. Uh-huh. And an editor from Algonquin Books read the essay, Sick of Nature, and of course asked me to do a nature book because there, <laughs> there were some lyric descriptions in there. And she did something that no one had ever done before because I'd published with the University Press. She offered me an advance. And I was living on Cape Cod, and she said, I want you to do a book about birds. And I was like, well, I don't want to do books about semi-palmated plovers. And, you know, uh, but then I remembered that ospreys, you know, the big raptors, hadn't been on Cape Cod when I was a kid. Uh-huh. And now they were back, and they were back from DDT. And I just recovered from testicular cancer. So it was like, okay, this I can get my head into. So I quit my job, which was at a bookstore. Uh-huh. And I, I got out on the marshes in March and watched these birds came back and then watched them through the season as they, you know, mated and fed the young and the young learned to fly. And it was, on one hand, it was incredibly boring. I mean, I was just sitting there watching birds, you know. You weren't Um, a birder, like a birder type. I was a mild, you know, I noticed what was around me. I didn't know the names of a lot of things, but now I was becoming one during that year. Uh And then they flew off in October and they're really charismatic. I mean, it's like watching pro sports or something when they dive for a fish. You know, they're kind of like a small forward size. They're not like eagle size. But watching them dive down, 
pop a wheelie, go in, clutch the fish, and pull it out was, was awesome. And that's how they make their living, from this daring do high dive. So I thought, this is cool. And as I got obsessed with the birds, I also realized I was writing about obsession in general mm -hmm. and about writing itself and like what it required. There's a character in Ultimate Glory, Ken Dobbins, who really comes to represent that same sort of obsessiveness. But it's a frisbee he's diving for. The osprey was diving for a fish. So then the season ended and the birds flew off. And I mentioned the intensity with which I wrote the frisbee book. Well, second place goes to the month after the birds left. I basically wrote the whole book in that month. Oh, wow. Because uh, I've been taking journal notes the whole way, mm -hmm. building up, building up, building up, and then the burst. So that book was, I don't again, I don't think it's traditional nature writing. There's Hopefully it's funny. It's, like I said, about writing and obsession as much as is about the birds. But that kind of cemented me as nature guy. <laughs> and that's why I published Thick of Nature next. <laughs> so it kind of has gone like that, you know. It seems like in that theme of obsession is also paired up in a lot of your work with ambition. Like I was yes. going back and reading a bunch of essays and you write very straightforwardly about ambition and I feel like in a way that a lot of people don't. Like it's the yeah. thing that people don't talk about. Yeah. What a writer really wants and why you're doing it. Yeah, I'm shocked by how, I mean I teach, I'm the chair of the creative writing department at University of North Carolina, Wilmington. And I teach these grad classes, one called The Writing Life. And I always ask people, to do their kind of literary family tree, who their influences are. And I asked them to talk about openly about ambition. And it's so weird the way people either don't think about it or don't admit they don't think about it. Because I sure as hell thought about mm -hmm. it. You know, like I went into it wanting to be great at it, you know, and, and reading the greats and kind of, I think Keats called it the immortal Freemasonry, where you feel like you're almost talking to ghosts, really. And and I wanted, you know, why not? You know, in fact, I would say ambition is one of the very top themes of the ultimate book, too. Yeah. Uh, just ambition in a world you wouldn't think there would be much ambition. <laughs> right. And I don't know, kind of a fire got lit. And it actually, the ambition got in my way at first uh, because I wanted my stuff to be great and it froze me up. Uh -huh. But later on, it was really helpful. And I'm startled by the way people don't, you know, admit or maybe they're not really caring that much about it, but it seems unlikely people wouldn't want to be like, you know, immortal, <laughs> to use a, a kind of over-the-top word. Yeah. I mean, there's an essay you wrote that was in Oxford American that touches on this also, that's like, even if you give up on the idea of immortality, like, okay, nothing right. we really are going to write now is going to be truly immortal in the way Because a supernova might come and <laughs> you know, humans will be extinct. You know, or even if and that's too high to reach for ambition, it still is like a registration of your existence in the world. Yeah. And I think it also, it takes a while because it does get in the way at first sometimes. You know, you're, we're all big imitators when we're young writers. And if you're suddenly imitating Samuel Johnson, no one's going to read you because <laughs> you'll be saying, and sir, uh, activity contains within itself its own reformation. You know, you're, you're not going to, so you have to break out of that early phase of it. But later on in your writing, it keeps your, your eyes high. You know, it keeps your, it makes you look big. Not you appear big, but you're looking for the big. One of my favorite uh, Wallace Stegner quotes is, largeness is a lifelong matter. And he means largeness as far as being magnanimous, but also in terms of looking at the bigger picture. Uh -huh. And one of the, my frustrations as a teacher is how I teach creative nonfiction. Well, 99.9% .9 of that is memoir. And very particular to the self, this happened to me, kind of a high-flown what I did on my summer vacation. And I love memoir, but I think by breaking it out of just being your own story, you make it into more, you know. That's another good thing about ambition. Well, I saw somewhere that you do not self-describe as a journalist, or you didn't at the point at which this previous interview had taken place. But I've seen pieces of yours that feel not quite like straight journalism. Like, I feel like you're always in there. Yeah. But do you think about those definitions? Like, am I a journalist capturing the world versus this more sort of memoir approach of like, no, this is my experience in the world? Yeah, I don't think so. I think it's more the container than the... Like, I think of the creative outpouring being kind of like spew coming out. And and the containers are like maybe one's an earthen cup and one's a bottle and one's an urn. So for instance, we mentioned outside. Um, I'm 
still essentially going to do the same thing, but I know that container, I'm not going to be doing, you know, David Gessner's insecurities in that piece as much, you know, as I would for a more literary container. Right. Uh, no, right. I mean, I think outside's a great, great place to publish. Uh, just they're going to care more about a piece I did for them recently was about following Sandy, mm-hmm. and they're going to care about, you know, the storm and the science and the drama of the trip more than they are about the interior aspects. So I think that it's not like I sit there creating a formula. It's more, um, I just recently read the beginnings of two different books to my students. Mm-hmm. One is that Cape Cod book, A Wild Rank Place, and it starts fall, the best time on Cape Cod, and then it starts doing kind of present moment physical descriptions. And I contrast that with this book about John Hay where it says, it was the time before the towers fell, the time of, you know, and it's not that I'm a different writer, it's they're different containers. Mm-hmm. The, the one asked for a big past tense description and the other asked for the immediacy. So it's a little bit of those genre choices that end up deciding how much of me is in there. Mm-hmm. And the journalism, yeah, I would describe myself as, that's one of the things I do now. Um, I really admire when people, my neighbor in North Carolina, John Jeremiah Sullivan, is one of the best at taking a journalistic piece and then Trojan horsing in like memoir and different things. Yeah. And I admire that and would like to do it more. Now, you've written about teaching and about having sort of left a full-time life as a writer at one point to go into teaching. And in that writing, you seem, I don't want to say ambivalent about it because you seem enthusiastic about teaching. Mm -hmm. But again, it's like very open about the reasons behind it than you normally see in someone who's sort of teaching yeah. writing. It's like Well, yeah. I mean I think I called it like being in captivity. Yeah. You know, and, and being taken out of the wild. I mean I used to get up super early and write for like seven hours and uh and then go for a run and take a nap and get up and do it again, kinda and drink and then uh, <laughs> do it again. But so as a teacher I've had to use my energy differently. And I felt that way when I first got into teaching. But I, you know, as I've gotten older, and I don't need to spend seven hours. I mean, a lot of what I'm doing is work that I've already got the the mass of it laid out and I'm editing and shaping. I've become more and more pleased to be a teacher. And, you know, I just did this book about partly about Wall Stegner. And that was great to have him kind of as a model too. Mm-hmm. And so that- he taught at Stanford. And, yeah. And wrote. And though when he quit, he said, finally, you know, I'm free and I I only taught with part of my heart, my right ventricle say, he said. So afterward, he had this late life spurt after teaching, but he was a great teacher. And so I I was really ambivalent when I started. Right now, I'm chair of the department too. So it's like, (laughs) I'm pretty much doing it full time. And I like it right now. I I do hope I live for a while after I quit teaching so I can just go back to writing. Do you talk to your students about this sort of business of a career as totally, a writer? Totally. I mean, that's that class, the writing life. This is a really interesting philosophical kind of spectrum for these writing programs, how theoretical and literary you are and how practical. And I'd say we're kind of in the breadloaf tradition of being more on the practical end mm. and having editors and agents come in. And I talk to them about the frustrations and the a story like I told you about the ultimate book failing, you know. How do you get back on the horse after that? So I talk to them a lot about that because if you can't you know, create a life where you're able to write, it doesn't matter how good a writer you are. You've got to be able to do it regularly. I mean, that's one of the things I talk about all the time is the dailiness of writing and how you're a totally different writer if you're doing it every day. You have magic powers that you don't have. I mean, I wake up and that's kind of automatically what I do. I don't have to have it be a fall day where it's raining and Neil Young is on to be inspired. <laughs> There's a regularity to the inspiration. Uh-huh. And so I talk to the student, and not everybody does it that way. You know, I'm not trying to make everybody a clone of me, but I do think you need to be able to control the life to be able to make the writing more, to make the writing great, but also make it more regular. Mm-hmm. So that sounds like bowel movement, <laughs> but, but you know, I just don't, I started with the cliche of like Hemingway being an asshole and drinking and, you know, and Thomas Wolfe and, oh, you got to be kind of an asshole to be a writer. Well, it turns out you don't, you know, you can try to 
lead a good life and be good to your colleagues and then have that intense period of, of writing and inspiration. Yeah. And you have, I feel like, figures that come up again and again in your writing. Some of them would naturally come up, like Thoreau comes up. So if you're yeah. going to be writing a lot about nature, Thoreau's going to come up. Yeah. And then you're, you're sort of reacting against Thoreau at times. And yeah. then you have a particular professor from Harvard who's in the Walter Jackson Bate. Yeah, yeah, Walter Jackson Bate, who's appears in in this ultimate book a lot, but also pops up in other yeah. places. And it made me wonder if when you're writing, you view all of these things as part of one project in some way. In some way, yeah. And in some way, my second novel, which was very Rothian and autobiographical, is in ultimate glory. Oh, really? I mean, not the Frisbee parts, but the writing parts and the ambition parts. You know, it's like... I rewrote it, but it was what I was writing anyway back then, which was The Struggles of a Young Writer, which, of course, no editor ever wants to publish because <laughs> everybody's done it a million times. But, you know, I was able to, again, Trojan horse it in because I had the ultimate stuff. But I think that, to me, as a writer, is I love reading writing about writing. I mean, I know it's not supposed to be done, but I, I love reading Roth wrestling with the book that he's writing. So not all of it is a piece because I've done other subjects and other things, but mm -hmm. the autobiographical content, you know, it's kind of a, a large book that I could just jam it all into if I broke down the other books, yeah. And did the original version of Ultimate Glory have, I mean, it sort of has these two figures from sort of like this period of Ultimate Frisbee, like the legendary players, and they yeah. they contrast each other, and they have different... Yeah. motivations, Steve Mooney and Kenny Dobbins. Yeah. Did, was that the original idea or did that kind of form as you were writing it? It would have been part of the original plan, but in a different way because I would have been playing with Steve Mooney uh, uh, right. for uh -huh. Boston. And then Ken would have come in as kind of the enemy villain character. But when I came back to it, it evolved a little differently because what really, when I first did the book and my agent read it and a few other people read it, I was surprised. I was trying to make it more external and journalistic, and the parts they really liked were the parts about me. Uh -huh. So when I finally came back to it, I um, it became more of a personal book. I'd say like you know a third of it is memoir of me, a third is about ultimate, and a third is about Ken and Moons, and they became more. I mean, you could see them as writing symbols. You know, Moons as that dailiness and persistence I was talking about, and Kenny as the obsessiveness and. For people who don't know, like Moons is six seven and he's thin, and Dobbins is five six and he's this chunk of muscle kind of. And Dobbins just did nothing but you know he he worked a little bit, but he did nothing but play ultimate in his twenties and early thirties, and had scorn for those of us who had other interests. And you know it's kind of a Van Gogh appeal, like of just like this is what I do, and you know I'm going to talk about o overt ambition. And very clear, I'm going to be great at this. And yeah. that's what I want to do is be great at this. Which I think is a reason the young writers don't say it because it's scary. A young writer says, I'm going to be a great writer when they're in a writing program and everybody else is just rolling their eyes and I don't know what. So why did you quit? I think I quit because I got my first book accepted right after my dad died. And I just got married. And my wife and I decided that we would move back to Cape Cod because it was a, you know it wouldn't do for a Cape Cod nature writer to be living in Colorado. And so I played in the fall and we went to nationals. We did okay, not great. And then I moved back to Cape Cod and that was really the period of about six years where we just wrote full time mm -hmm. on the Cape in the winter. Your wife's also right. Yeah, and had the wood stove going. And I, I romanticized that period. That's part of the reason I wrote the piece that was in the New York Times Magazine about teaching being like going into captivity because I'd had this really wild stretch right before. Now I'm used to it and I'm very glad I'm a teacher. But right then I was like, ugh. And the reason I went into it is because my wife got pregnant. <laughs> it was finally So finally at 42, I decided to get a job. Uh -huh. I'd put it off long enough. So I quit because, you know, I'd found this new thing. I was going to be a writer. And also, I was 35. And in the pre-Federer era, era, that seemed pretty old. Pre-Brady, <laughs> pre-Federer era. You know, I was like, okay, enough. And did you feel the absence of it when you did quit? Yes. Um, I would say I felt the absence 
of a tribe and a team around me. And, you know, I'd always had writing, which was the solo venture, but I'd had this other thing. And suddenly it was just uh, writing. And I got a little crazy because it was just writing. Hmm. You know, people, I always have students who are like, oh, I'm going to a writing colony and I can just write for two weeks. And I'm like, okay, well, don't go insane. <laughs> you know, because, <laughs> you, you know, the things that you think are getting in the way of writing are actually kind of framing writing. And they get there and they're, they can't write at all. Or, yeah. you know, they're like, suddenly they have this thing they've been dying for time. And we had that pretty much all the time. I mean, I taught it. Harvard Extension School, so I'd drive up to Boston. But other than that, I was pretty much writing. And uh, and I got into it, but I was writing too much. <laughs> you know, I was writing like eight hours a day, and then, but it was a lot of fun. But it was also a little crazy making. Yeah. So one of the things that I always felt was good about the fact that I never really got the chance to write about Ultimate was that it was this sort of more obscure thing. And right. at some level, there was something nice about it being insulated from the world. Yeah. And I'm curious if you feel that having written this book, if you are kind of like opening up a window into something that was sort of a more preserved, like almost like yeah. telling people about a place uh, yeah, that yeah, no yeah. one ever goes. Exactly. Like Outside Magazine, 10 places yes. no one has ever been. Exactly. Yeah. I don't know why we're pounding so hard on that poor Outside Magazine. I love Outside Magazine. We, we love you. Let us keep publishing with you. <laughs> Um, I guess I'm opening it up a little to other people, though based on the readings, only Ultimate players are reading it. <laughs> but that's a big audience if you yeah, get If uh, you get them. There's a lot of them now. But it's a fractured audience because I was just at the Great Grand Masters National Championships last weekend, and on our team was a guy who's a co-owner of a, one of the pro teams now. Uh-huh. And we discovered that over half our team of Ultimate players, passionate big Ultimate players, didn't know that there were pro leagues. So it's even within the world, you know, and one of the challenges with the book is to get the young players to read it and think this is me too, you know, and also to read because video seems to be the coin of the realm <laughs> in the ultimate world. And they're like a book about ultimate, you know. Uh, so I think it's eventually going to find its way throughout that world, but it's a little bit of a challenge. And also, I think ultimate players, it's not just the self-deprecation. They're suspicious, like, wait, is this some kind of hemp product somebody's selling on the sideline? Uh-huh. Is it a, oh, wait, it's a real book with real... And I said early on, and I got lucky because I got the Wall Street Journal and Washington Post, but I wanted to get good external reviews from real places to give it kind of the stamp of just so ultimate players could think, oh, this is a real thing. Yeah. You know, um, so we'll see, but I mean, the early signs are good, but it's also fascinating to me how splintered that world is. Yeah, huh, that's interesting. Because I always think of it as like, I'm aware of the pro leagues, although I haven't really watched any of it, like yeah, some of it's on either. TV, but in a way it can make me a little sad just because it feels like, I don't know, maybe it's like the band that made it big or like the yeah. thing that you had that now, yeah. also they're exactly. so much better. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're so much they're better than good. we were. Yeah. But if it makes you feel better, they're getting paid like $25 a game. Well, <laughs> I mean, I want them to get paid more to do it. They yeah. seem like exceptional athletes. But you kind of talk about that in the book, that there's this a little bit of a lamentation about, like, as it does get bigger, yeah. people who could have played college soccer, college basketball or whatever are playing it. Yeah. And suddenly it's like right. it's not as wild and free as it Well, also, even more bluntly, it's like, if they'd come along while I was playing, I wouldn't have played, or I certainly wouldn't have, you know, been able to star at things, you know, <laughs> because they would supplant us, and and that's happened overall in Ultimate, I think. Yeah. Through the years, that the better players have kicked out the, the le- I mean, you can still play, but I mean, on the top level. Yeah, and um, what are you on to after this? Do you have another project that you're already? Well, I feel. Working on? Yeah, I have the the novel, which I am going to. Uh, just met with my agent about two blocks from here at Junior's. and oh, really? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I'm insisting that we push the Cape novel next. But nonfiction, I feel like I've been sitting on the sidelines a little during the Trump disaster uh, environmentally, yeah. sitting on the sidelines. So I have a, a big environmental book that I'm I'm going to try to sell next. And I don't want to give too much of it away, but it's I was calling it armed nature writing. 
you know, like, you know, just kind of a more. I did a TV show for National Geographic where I was didn't write any of it. Well, I wrote a few lines, but the writer's thesis was that screens are messing us up, and that you know, so much time on the phone and computer is screwing us up, and that nature is restorative. And I want to go a little in that direction too, hmm. but I also want to talk about bigger nature losses like public lands. And so I think this answers a question you asked earlier. I think there'll be less David Gessner in this one just because hmm. it's so, you know, it's always a ratio. It's like picture two spheres. And I always think for different pieces, sometimes the world is bigger and sometimes the self is smaller and sometimes the self is bigger and the sometimes they're the same size. And you you kind of picture what fits the particular piece. And how much do you feel like a person could read your, let's say, collected work and know you? Pretty well, I think. I mean, I there's always an element, even in the most honest writers, even in Montaigne or you know Roth, or there's an element of shtick because there has to be. Like with Montaigne, it's a little bit like, okay, I get it. You're apologizing and you're saying, oh, I'm so honest and this is just me being me. And probably if you were in person with him, you'd want to slap him after, you know, <laughs> he did that for the 80th time. And and as I say, you know, in this book, in Ultimate Glory, a large part of my sense of humor and sensibility developed as a preemptive strike against my father. Uh-huh. He was super critical. You know, I'd get a 98 and he'd say, what happened to the other two points? And so I developed kind of a sense of humor that was like, criticize myself before he can criticize me. You know, that's how it started. Hopefully it's evolved beyond that. So I think laying myself out there and in a vulnerable way has always been just part of what I do. In the book, you mentioned your dad. He talks about, or at one point he says, like, you have to live in the real world or you yeah. don't live in the real world. Yeah. Talking both about maybe your writing career and ultimate yeah. at the time. It's kind of a funny thing to tell a budding novelist. <laughs> You're like, yes, that's why I'm good. <laughs> well, that was that was kind of my question, which is that did that leave you with a sense of like, I don't want to live in the real world if that's what the real world is? Yeah. I mean, that took a long time. And mainly I felt just like financial panic for yeah. about 15 years after graduating, you know, just and to some extent, because I went into debt during that time, it's still with me a little bit. So that part of the real world was always frustrating. I mean, very naively, I thought, if I'm great at writing, you know, that's going to take care. And I had the old school, like, Thomas Wolfe, you drop the giant manuscript on Max Perkins' doorstep, and then he's like, you're a genius. Here's a million dollars. And that never happened. <laughs> so I feel like I I started living in the his real world when I was 42, but there was a long stretch <laughs> in there before that. I mean, I always think of, in an earlier book, I had an anecdote about two ultimate players. We were playing pickup basketball, and then we went down to the pool after we played basketball, and they were both entrepreneurs. I was working on a novel, but they kind of excluded me from the conversation. They're like, oh, it's so exciting to build this thing. And, you know, and they, they were in Boston doing real estate and doing, and one of them, who's a good friend of mine, said to me, you're like creating your whole, this whole world. You wouldn't understand, he said to me. <laughs> I'm like, yes, I understand. That's, that's what I do. It's literally you know what I'm I mean? trying to do all day. But our worlds that we create don't necessarily translate to money. So I always felt a little jealous of ultimate players like Steve Mooney, who had a good day job and then uh-huh. could be a superhero on the weekend sort of thing. Whereas I felt like my other thing, both things were kind of precarious and anxiety provoking because... Uh-huh. They didn't have any real-world reward at that point. Uh-huh. And it didn't help to have my father harping over there. Yeah. Yeah. In going back and revisiting all of this, I'm interested in sort of like the nostalgia quotient for you and how that, how that feels to sort of relive that uh, as, you're, as you're sort of putting together this memoir of the specific time in your life. Um. There was some of that in writing. There's been more of that in the Facebook and social media reaction Mm. because all these old pictures are being dredged up of not just me, of all the players. And at the talks, you know, it's these people I haven't seen in 30 years. And they're clearly, there was a hunger for getting back to that for obvious reasons. You know, our lives have moved on. We don't play it anymore. We were heroes and giants back then. You know, I, I had to pay for my 
Springsteen glory days epigraph. You know, uh, I hope someday we're not we don't just talk about it, but I know we will. That sort of thing. Uh, that's not exactly right, but you know, basically, we love talking about how great we used to be and showing pictures about how great we used to be. And maybe we weren't that great, but we it felt that way. <laughs> so it was fun to go back, but it's been even more fun since. Yeah. Well, David, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm about to head down to Maplewood, New Jersey, home of Ultimate Frisbee. Where it all started. Where it all started. I might throw a disc on the sacred parking lot, which is the concrete uh, first field of Ultimate. Yeah. That's it for this week's Longform Podcast. I am your co-host, Evan Ratliff. Thank you to David Gessner for coming in. Go check out his book, Ultimate Glory, whether or not you like Ultimate Frisbee or even knew what it was coming into this podcast. Also, special thanks to Dan Ackerstein, Coach Dan, for making this interview happen. Thanks to our sponsors, Casper, uh, Squarespace, and MailChimp. Go to readthissummer.com to check out the books that we have curated for the Decatur Book Festival coming up. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer, and to our editor this week, Janelle Pfeiffer, and Courtney Harrell, our associate producer. We will see you next week. Claude 3 from Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. With models at every point of the price-performance curve, you no longer have to make trade-offs between intelligence, speed, and cost. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skill and speed. And Haiku is the fastest and lowest-cost model on the market, perfectly designed for high-volume, high-speed use cases. Join the thousands of enterprises who use Anthropic to navigate this new frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude, C-L-A-U-D-E, today. Jumpstart your genius with Claude 3 by Anthropic. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.